0: Hey guys, uh, before I get started, so this doesn't count against my time, uh, when uh, the Vincents showed up here maybe 10 or 11 years ago, uh, we did so, one of the primary reasons was because we knew Mike and Kathy from over at Topeka Bible Church and trusted them and, and uh, felt like it was a, a good place for us to be, but at that time, Mike was the only elder and... Uh, Uh, you know, we could tell that he was under a lot of pressure. Well, the short of it is that Mike and Kathy have been pulling the oars for 20 years now, okay? Uh, And uh, they've had help, you know, but we in our leadership model consider everybody to be equal. None of us, there's no head guy here, but it's pretty well recognized that Mike is the first among equals, Okay, for obvious reasons. And Kathy has always been there for a lot of the ministry. So, Mike and Kathy, I just want to say to you guys, on behalf of I know everybody here, how much we appreciate you, how much we love you, how much we pray that you guys will get a well deserved rest. Thank you. If you haven't noticed, uh, Mike's in shorts. He's ready to go. (laughs) I need to also make a disclaimer before we get into the message today. Uh, We're going to talk about a rule, okay? And if you hear me talk about people who do not measure up, who fail, who stumble, who don't obey the rule, I want you to understand that I am chief among those people. You know, we're going to talk today about what I call, not the rule, but the rule. You see the distinction. Because this rule, what you all know as the golden rule, is so comprehensive. It affects all of our lives, and it includes all of the word of God. Uh, It goes, therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them... For this is the law and the prophets. Now, today, this is one of those messages where we're going to kind of consolidate. We're going to talk about the integrity of the word of God, in particular, this passage. Because my guess is that you, if you're like me, you just knew the golden rule. Everybody knows the golden rule and it stands alone. We're going to talk about how it really doesn't. Let me just start with this. Um, It might be considered parental malpractice to miss teaching your child the golden rule. The problem is that, you know, they don't always catch the finer points. For instance, we were in the process of trying to teach our young ones the golden rule, all right? And then one day I heard weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I come in and find out a victim on the floor and an older sibling there uh, with a funny look on his face. I said, what did you do? Why? He said, well, Dad... We've been studying the golden rule, and he did something to me, and it says you're doing others what you want them to do to you, and I figured that's what he wanted me to do to him. So I slugged him. Well. Oops. Oh, I gave it away. There's the lineup. All right. Now. I hate this thing. I can't figure it out. Okay. There's the lineup, circa early 1980s, and uh, here we go, and I don't know if you can read it, but you see the sign behind him? Yeah, kind of ironic, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, all right, but the thing is, a lot of us, if not most of us, if not all of us adults, don't always get it either, okay? Okay? You know, one general observation we can make about the Golden Rule is that it is an extremely flexible principle. This guy, uh, J.C. Ryle, was an Anglican preacher, an evangelical back in the 1800s, and he said that it, the Golden Rule settles a hundred difficult points. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for conduct in specific cases. And if you think about it, that's absolutely true. Uh, Let's see if we can get beyond just knowing and reciting the golden rule, but actually apply this universally acclaimed concept. You know, as we did in, uh, last month in the passage on asking and receiving, we want to start with a study of the context of the golden rule. Again, as I said, most of us probably see this as a, a great rule standing alone. Uh, but look at it. How does it start? Therefore, and that therefore connects it with the stuff that comes right before it. Uh, and you know from our study that what we're really talking about here is the whole subject of judgment. We started with judge not. We know we are not to condemn others Prejudge or judge without taking all the facts and circumstances into account that we can, we can gather. We're not to be hypocritical or hypercritical, in other words, really judgmental. Then we've got the log and the splendor analogy that, that uh, teaches us to start with self-judgment. Uh, but when we ask ourselves, how are we, weak, prideful, miserable folks, how are we ever to live the life exemplified by that rule and taught by Christ. And the answer we studied last month, and the answer was, ask and it shall be given you, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened. So the Sermon on the Mount and all of Jesus' teachings make us feel all unworthy, helpless, hopeless, desperate for His grace. Our asking is not for the temporal things of this world, rather... The parallel passage in Luke 11 clarifies that the Heavenly Father, when asked, gives the Holy Spirit that comprehensive gift that includes all the redemptive gifts of forgiveness, joy, patience, discernment, and overall, the character of Christ. But in that judgment of self, we've got to first recognize and admit that we as sinners are totally incapable of keeping the law perfectly. Therefore, we've got to depend upon his amazing grace. And that grace, just like salvation and forgiveness, does not come without asking. So he promises if we ask, he will give that grace to us. And one way we can look at this passage about asking and receiving, verses 7 through 11, is like it's a parenthesis to kind of get us to the point where we can help others through righteous discernment, discrimination, and judgment. Therefore, the golden rule is sort of a capstone on something we all do, but often not very well, that is judging. It sums up the biblical approach to judging. After Jesus reminds us of what the Father has done for us in spite of our sin natures and how gracious God is to our undeserving selves, we can start to see the magnitude of what this rule really means to us. We can see the consistency of Jesus' teaching throughout God's word. Uh, in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, Master, what is the great commandment? And his answer was, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang. Or depend all the law and the prophets. So the command to love your neighbor was first given in way back in Leviticus, and it was repeated throughout the Gospels and the Epistles. In Matthew five, we heard Jesus correct the scribes and Pharisees uh, with the command: Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. So Ah, fortiori, remember that 75-cent word? If we are to love our enemies, we are certainly to love our neighbors. The golden rule, therefore, epitomizes the thread that runs throughout the word of God. So it's getting practical here. How does this affect our approach to others? So we first got to ask some questions of ourselves. What do I like and dislike? What encourages me? What discourages me? What brings out the best of me? What about the worst? What do I want people to think of me? What really hurts me? You know, it is so easy with many of the sayings in the Sermon on the Mount to sit back and admire the great wisdom to look at them as if they were pieces of great art in a museum somewhere. And yet, we fail to apply these things in our lives. It's like we we can't Take it down from the wall and carry it home. So, could Jesus be aware of this tendency? Do you think? Well, if we do think about this, it seems like he's telling us that we are to look at other folks and understand that they have feelings just like ours. We are to put ourselves in their place and just think about what we want and do not want. In our relationships with others, the way we act and speak and even look at them should be guided by what we desire for ourselves and for others. Whatever you wish that people should do to you, do to them. Now, this is not rocket surgery, okay? Yet, it eludes us. Think of all the employment provided to psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, authors, counselors, counselors, social workers, marriage and family therapists, caseworkers, attorneys, judges, and law enforcement officers, due to our failure to follow this simple rule. But it's even broader than that, much, much broader. Our city, state, national, and international conflict is often blamed on economic, or political, or social, or even environmental strain. Now, these may be exasperating factors, But the root of all these problems gets down to our relationships with other people and our sinful responses. It is what I want versus what others want. You know, this rule's been around a while, you know, a long, long time. It's one of the best known in all the Bible, but it doesn't seem to be working very well. Apparently, just holding up the golden rule as a standard for proper conduct isn't enough. It may be deeper than just knowing the rule. So Jesus goes on and explains in a somewhat, not to old school evangelicals, but to new school evangelicals, this is the law and the prophets. In other words, the golden rule sums up the law and the proclamations of the prophets about the law. This is the object and purpose of the law. Now, last month, I stated the primary purpose of the law for the New Testament believer is to make abundantly clear that you can in no way keep the law perfectly and our desperate need for God's grace. And hopefully nobody heard me say that God's moral law, the 10 words, as Mike would call them, has no other purpose in our lives. Huge purposes. It's the foundation of our culture. Without them, we end up with chaos, with anarchy. Uh, These biblical concepts formed the basis of our legal system here in the States and helped form our underlying values and our culture that we have in this country. Uh, It's the primary reason that the United States, as imperfect as it is, has long been considered the leader of the free world. However, God's law is subject to misuse. And so we're going to look a little bit now about how the Sermon on the Mount is a whole body and fits all together We read in in, uh, Matthew 5, I think. There we go. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, even heaven and earth pass away on the Mount addresses how the kingdom of God fulfills the law and the prophets. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus and his kingdom. However, the righteousness required by the kingdom was susceptible to being twisted into hypocritical acts of righteousness. You You remember how Jesus pointed out the tragic manner in which God's law was misunderstood and misapplied? By the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew 5, you heard repeatedly. You have heard that it was said by them of old. But I say unto you. Okay, Pointing out the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. Then in Matthew 6, he turns the light on us. His followers and warns against our own hypocrisy in those same areas. You remember the study about doing good deeds in front of others in order to be seen by them. Same problem. There he was giving his disciples the right view of the law, and now he comes back to it in Matthew 7. Our tendency is to look at the law as something to be applied mechanically, like so many rules and regulations, and some consider the law to be a goal in and of itself, that all one has to do is live up to it, never falling short, never going beyond, and all will be well. Another view is that the law is something negative or prohibitive. It does say, thou shalt not. But what Jesus teaches here in, in the Sermon on the Mount is that it is a positive and spiritual thing never meant to be applied mechanically. The, ser- the scribes and Pharisees reduced the spiritual and living law to an object to be achieved outwardly. They reasoned that if they didn't actually murder somebody or commit adultery, or if they, if they honored their parents with their lips... That they, they would somehow be morally righteous. In this, they fail to see the spiritual intent and great goal for which the law was given. In the Golden Rule, Jesus gives us that goal. Why does the law tell us not to covet our neighbor's things or members of his household, not to lie, steal, commit adultery? Is it to obey like the statutes of a government? No. The spirit and purpose behind the law is so that we can love one another. But Jesus knows our nature. He's got to be explicit. He knows that we need more than just love one another. We say that all the time. He tells us to consciously consider how we value our lives and understand that others value theirs in the same way. So if I care about others, I will seek what is best for others, just as I seek my own well-being. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Spirit of what? It's a spirit of the living God that we see expressed even in the regulations of the law. We find examples of this in Exodus 23. You know, like the one, I think it's on your sheet. If, if, if I find my enemy's ox or other farm animals straying... What am I to do? Kill it? Ignore it? No. Take it back to my enemy. So for us today, this might be a stray pet like Eva. Thanks, Kathy. Or it might be a tricycle that just kind of rolls out into the street. Okay? And we see several different responses to those kind of situations. One response, well, well, none of my business that guy can't take care of his stuff. You know, this is the response that we should expect from the world. Now, one of my law professors, and this is way back, uh, explained to us uh, with heads of mush that if we were at, let's say, a lake, and we saw a young girl just a few yards out in the lake drowning we could not be charged criminally for just standing there and watching her drown. Okay? Now, this was an old school professor. And so I remember his words verbatim. He said, yes, it is not against the law to be a dirty, rotten SOB. Okay? He got it. There's the letter, and then there's the spirit of the law another response would, would be i should help because the law says i should now this second law the second response is still the letter of the law but much better than the previous one but yet it falls short of jesus command because it is born out of blind obedience without spirit a third response would be my enemy will suffer if his property is lost And I would want him to to do what he could to return my property to me. For that reason, I should do so for him. We're getting much, much closer here. Not quite there. Uh, So uh, the law and its regulations are illustrations of this great principle. So let's take into account how we today view and apply the golden rule. And I would guess that if we all thought about this, it would be hard for any of us to think of situations or people who have disrespected or trashed, or the word today, I think, is dissed, the golden rule, all right? Uh, now, you might hear parodies like, do unto others before they do unto you, okay? But, but nobody takes those things seriously. Uh, unbelievers are fond of quoting the golden rule, even though they have no idea where it comes from. The golden rule is about as close as you can get to a universally admired and praised ideal. And that's the problem. It is revered to be a great practice, but it is rarely practiced. The law and the Sermon on the Mount were not given just to be praised, but to be used. And Man has tried education, even legislation, to implement the golden rule. Judging from the conflict we see all over the place, it's not working too well. Uh, Why? Why are there so many clashes between nations and people within nations and between churches and families and people within churches and within families? Why do people think the worst of others or write them off? Why do they back out of commitments made for life? The answer is profoundly biblical. The golden rule and the whole of the Sermon on the Mount are popular simply because people like to quote pithy sayings that make them sound good or even spiritual. They believe that these quotes, this isn't doctrine, it's not theology. And in this view, they are profoundly wrong. I know that I mentioned, now that I've mentioned this word doctrine, some of you are going to be tempted. Please don't go to sleep. Please don't. Because the very first point of the gospel is that man is a sinful creature due to the fall. That sin nature makes it very difficult to implement the golden rule. This stems from a wrong view of the law. Paul tells us in Romans 8, because the carnal mind or natural mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh Cannot please God. Man's educational efforts and regulations may bring some measure of compliance, but the natural man never fully buys into that because he hates God's law. Underlying that hate of God's law is there's a hate for hatred for God Himself. Since the fall, natural man is the enemy of God and is without God in this world. Why so much hate for God? I think it all come down to one simple word, self. Man's nature causes him to have the wrong attitude of self. Man simply loves himself. Jesus recognized that tendency with the command, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. However, this is the one thing that natural man in his unregenerate state must resist because he loves himself so, so much. He just cannot love others as he loves himself. Even Christians struggle with this temptation. In short, our nature causes us to be self-centered, self-consumed. And this obsession with self causes all kinds of problems and conflicts. In labor disputes, one side says, we should get more. The other side says, if you get more, we got less, right? Well, there's racial disputes. One side says, you're not treating us the way that we want to be treated. The other side says, you want to be treated better than you treat us. In politics, every group says, we're right, everybody else is wrong. And in personal conflicts, it's... I want it my way. And the other says, no, my way. That's the problem. This is, both sides object to the other and argue because each is thinking just of himself, not the other. Nations go to war because each looks after what is best for itself. Conflicts between people, groups, and nations all come down to this little word, self all the international summits and peace conferences and educational efforts will fall flat as long as self rules in the hearts of men. And that is all the result of the fall and the result in sin. Interestingly, we see the same concept in Paul's exhortation about marriage. He says in Ephesians 5, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife Loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. But nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. In marriage you're one. The church is one. So it's interesting. That we all recognize that, that tendency. Therefore. It seems like Jesus is telling us. That we need to use our imaginations. And each put ourselves in the place of that other person. Who were tempted to cheat or run over in some way or misuse for our own advantage because it is our nature to love ourselves. Let's get down to some practical application here. Um, The answer to all these problems is thoroughly biblical, thoroughly theological. It is the golden rule. Now, how can we possibly follow the golden rule? We see there... Uh, the word tells us when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment. He said, first, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, your, all your mind, with all your strength. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. From that, we can tell where to start. Not with the neighbor, but with God. If our goal is to follow the golden rule, our, we must first love God, We were made by him and for him. So our relationships with others cannot be right without a right relationship with him. In order to have a right relationship with him, we must set aside all of our disputes and quarreling and first look him in the face. See his righteousness, power, his creativeness, his justice and his mercy. We see that he alone is worthy of our praises. In his sight, all of our little problems, even international conflicts, are just like tiny ants on the floor. He's got everything under control. He doesn't nothing surprises him. There's nothing new under the sun for him. When we truly see God like this, we begin to see that our greatest achievements, our glory, our self is really. We're just sinners with no claim to anything. Now, there's some things that happen as a result of this understanding. The first effect is that the knowledge of the Holy One brings us to be humble before Him. When we're truly humbled, we're not thinking about my rights, my interests, my dignity, my gain. We know, if you think about it, that we deserve nothing but hell. Secondary consequence is that we start to see others as we should. No longer do we see others as threats to our position and our money and our interests. Rather, we see them as we see ourselves. We are simply sinners in the hands of an angry God, a God who can hate sin and love us at the same time. We are to see others in the same boat, adrift at sea, and desperate for the same rescue as the guy who's in the boat next to me. This is how we love our neighbors as we love ourselves, how we comprehend the treatment we should give them in their broken state because we know how we want to treat us in our broken state. And It's only when we see others in this light that we can free ourselves from the enslavement to Ourselves and enjoy the glorious liberty of the children of God. It's only then that we can truly do unto others as we wish that they would do unto us. A third truth is that thankfully, God never gives his children what they deserve. Now, let me be clear here there are consequences for our sin but we never really get what we deserve. We see that in the previous verses. It says, what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Our father really does not give us what we deserve. That would be eternal condemnation. Rather, he gives good gifts through his mercy and grace because he loves his children as a perfect father. So let's try to recap here. If you remember, the subject is judgment. It's very difficult to judge righteously. We've all got to make judgments. You're making them right now. We know, however, that we will be judged by the very same standard. So therefore, we've got to first judge ourselves, the log in our own eye, before we can look at the splendor in his. And that process makes us keenly aware of our unworthiness before God. And then Jesus balances the danger of being judgmental with the danger of being undiscriminating. We are warned about proclaiming the gospel before those few who will blaspheme God? The dogs and the hogs that we've talked about. And this warning deals with the exception, not the rule. But before the rule, our Lord temp- tempers this whole discussion with the warning we must that we must be trusting persistently. He tells us how we can negotiate this difficult process of judging all the time knowing that we are on thin ice due to our own weaknesses and failures. We are to ask, we are to ask for discernment and the grace to make those calls. And he makes an absolute promise. If we ask, he will give it. And then he caps it all off with this very simple rule. To to follow in our relationships with others, which of necessity requires judgment. You know, the golden rule is found in negative form in many other religions. Uh, There was one ancient rabbi named Hillel who said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow creatures. This is the whole law. All else is explanation. Pretty close. Except, Jesus' positive form is a much higher standard. See, the negative just says, if you don't want somebody to spit in your face, don't spit in theirs. True, right? But the positive says, if you want to be loved, love. If you want to receive, give. If you want to be blessed, bless. You can't just sit back and do no evil. You and I are, are to consider what we really want in our relationships from others and then do that to them, hear me, regardless of whether they do it to us. However... When we consider the golden rule in this context, you know, it's like peeling layers off an onion. It gets deeper and deeper. It's so much more. This is not just do unto others in order that they would do unto you. This is not some utilitarian principle that says one good turn deserves another or honesty pays. Rather, and this is significant, the whole goal here, the reason that we are to do to others as we wish for them to do to us is because doing so sums up the law and the prophets. It's the whole word. Earlier, we said that the kingdom of God fulfills the law and the prophets. and The golden rule conforms to the requirements of the kingdom of God that fulfills the law and the prophets. It's that one. Uh, and what we find when we look at this from a, a holistic standpoint is that the golden rule incorporates the truth required by swear not at all. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. It incorporates the love required by Jesus when he said, love your enemies. And finally, it incorporates the perfection demanded by Jesus when he says, be Therefore, perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Mike does a great job with those questions at the end of his messages on your sheets. And uh, I can't think that well. So I'm just going to ask you to think. Some of you are really nice people and you probably don't think you have any enemies. But there's probably somebody out there that you've got an issue with, a conflict, or maybe a major problem. I want you to think about that person right now. Okay? Okay. And here's what I believe that Jesus is saying, if you allow me to paraphrase here, kind of summarize, what he's saying to each one of us. Think how I, Jesus, look at you and that other person. I came to earth as God and lived a fully human yet sinless life. And then I went to the cross to pay the debt for the sin for you and that other person a debt that you both owed and neither could pay. I looked beyond the sin of both of you and presented the opportunity for eternal life for those who will choose it. If to those who have chosen eternal life, I command you to look at others as I look at you. When you judge that person, understand that he is no, she is no different than you. Stop thinking of yourself as something extraordinary. You know what you would want, how you would want her to treat you if the shoe was on the other foot. As you judge her, treat her in that way. This rule applies to all of our relationships and all of our interactions, including, of course, other believers. Believers. But if you find yourself interacting with, and of necessity, judging an unbeliever, remember that you and I, we all have a mission. It's called the Great Commission. That mission is to proclaim the good news, even through that judgment, so that she might be redeemed and become part of his bride, his body, His church. Lord God, you are so, so forgiving. You are so merciful. We see your simple rule, yet we have such difficulty following it. Lord, help us to understand. Help us not just to know it, not just to say it, but to do it. Lord God, if only we would, so many problems would be resolved. So many relationships would be healed. So much conflict and strife and war would go away. Lord, we don't we don't expect that out of the world. But we, as your bride, your church, should do everything we can to look at you first and see how loving and gracious you are, despite our faults, despite that we deserve to spend eternity in hell, but yet you have sent your Son to die for us. Pay that price so that we might spend eternity with you. Father, because you have been so loving and so gracious with us despite our inability to meet your righteousness. We pray that you would help us to in some way, even though imperfect, extend grace to others by treating them the way that we would want to be treated. Because we know that this is what you want through your word through the law and the prophets, through everything that runs through the Holy Scriptures. Father, we give you all praise and glory, and we ask for that right now, that grace, that understanding, to do just that. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.